The Big Picture, a Christian insight into the world of movies, television and pop culture with magazine editor Ben McKechn and scriptwriter Mark Hadley. A Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. How do you do? I'm Ben McKechn. And I'm your schoolyard chum, Mark Hadley. Welcome to episode 98 of The Big Picture for the week beginning March 12. And coming up on today's show... Wolverine versus King Kong! That's not an actual movie though. No, (laughs) Wolverine separate, King Kong. We're going to review them both, snarl. Plus we have Groundhog Day meets Final Destination. We're not actually doing those films either, but it's (laughs) drama about Before I Fall. Maybe we should just clarify, Mark. What we're going to be talking about on the show today is Logan, the Wolverine movie... Kong, Skull Island, and this little teen drama you're about to discuss real soon, Before I Fall. That's what we're going to do on the show today. just in case you couldn't pick that up from our (laughs) obscure Welcome to episode 98, and welcome to you, Sam Robinson. Hello, man. How are you? (laughs) Oh, mate, we're we're full of clarification at the start of our (laughs) show. I know. It's a good way to start, what I really meant by that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's get the wheels back on the cart by looking at what's in cinemas this week. What's happening? Uh, Thanks, Sam. Let's let's just bring this back to order. Uh, What opened at cinemas last Thursday is a movie that I think a lot of people may not have heard of apart from if they watched the whole Oscars ceremony and they did actually stick around for the Oscar winner for Best Foreign Film and they didn't go out and get a cup of tea because they would have heard of The Salesman, (laughs) which opened at cinemas last Thursday. This is from an Iranian director, Asghar Fahadi, who made an excellent film years ago called A Separation. Great, powerful, intimate film. I presume The Salesman is exactly the same. It's based on a performance of Arthur Miller's famous play, Death of a Salesman, and the couple that is at the centre of that. So The Salesman is at Art House Cinema around the place from last Thursday. And coming this Thursday, gentlemen, A Cure for Wellness, which is from the director of Pirates of the Caribbean films, Gore Verbinski. And for me, it looks a little bit like if you're a fan of Terry Gilliam or David Lynch, you might like this movie because <laughs> it's it's set in this, a Swiss Alps, like some sort of well, weird wellness center mm. and a company man has to go and try to rescue his CEO from it. Um, I say it looks like Terry Gilliam and David Lynch, but I'm not sure it's actually going to be as good, but A Cure for Wellness does open at cinemas this Thursday. If you like your films obscure and difficult to understand. (laughs) This is the week for you. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Right, Mark Hadley, what about the small screen? Well, actually, the small screen is probably going to be taking on all the uh, the viewers this week then because Tuesday, March 14 this week, ABC starts airing episode one of its two-part expose, Bullied. Now, I don't know if you've heard about this, no. but it's a controversial, compelling program hosted by Ian Thorpe, okay? And it's all about gaining an insight into the issue of school bullying by bringing victims and their classmates together in the same room, basically to deal with the issue of bullying. Okay, so it involves all sorts of incredible things with permission, uh, hidden cameras and such so that kids can actually show the bullying that's happening to mm. them. And then after we sort of obscure the identity of the voices of the, of the bullies, then bringing them together in a room to see if they can work it out together. That's amazing that bullies, quote unquote, were willing to be part of this kind of show. I, they might have been bullied. I don't know. <laughs> wow. Um, look, it's just, it's whatever it is, it's going to be captivating television. I mean, bullying is a major issue in Australia. In fact, strangely, uh, it is part of our culture. I, I feel like I remember saying to my, my wife, just as we were watching a particular film, how did they ever get away with that? Actually, it was a TV show. How did they ever get away with that? And she said it was the 70s. And mm. that's because it's not that long ago that bullying just wasn't an issue. So if you want to see this television program, well worth your effort. You'll find it on the ABC this Tuesday. Uh, and also something like oh, it's just a brilliant television show. Uh, it is actually on Channel 11. 
11. Now, I don't say enough about 11, which is one of the digital channels. I don't think anyone really talks about channel 11. Which one's that? Who, who's behind That's that one? 10. 10. Oh, 11. See, oh, they turned it up gone. to 11. I there see. You go. So what's the show? The show is Speechless. Now, if you haven't seen this, you've really got to go see it. It's just original and incredible. It's basically a comedy drama about an American family, uh, the DeMeo family, who have three children, and their oldest, JJ, is a high schooler with cerebral palsy. I have never seen a program that shifts disability right into the center of the frame, uh, and and make it is both comedic, but not in a in a disheartening or you know, downtrodden way. It is very very insightful about the life of trying to live as a family um, with disability as an integral part. The Demayo family basically are shifting school after school after school till they think they find the perfect school, and then it's trying to integrate in there. They quickly find that not everything can be as good as it could be. It stars Minnie Driver. Okay, and oh, so yeah. Minnie, it's just, she's yeah, back. She's back, and it is really worth having a look at. So I'd encourage you to check out. Uh, it's on Saturday nights on eleven at eight pm. All right. What about some entertainment news? Something about our Wolverine friend, Hugh Jackman. That's right. Uh, Mark is going to be talking about our Wolverine friend, Hugh Jackman, a little bit later in the show when he reviews Logan. Logan's at Australian Cinemas now. It had a huge opening. It's the biggest opening week of 2017. It knocked out a cool uh, 10 million Aussie dollars at the Australian box (laughs) office. Uh, Worldwide, Logan's doing very well, and now means the Wolverine trilogy's gone up over US $1 billion around the world. But... This is the final Wolverine movie, at least the final Wolverine movie that Hugh Jackman is going to star in. So it sounds like he's going out on a good note. We'll find out even more about that later on from Mark in the show. But yes, Logan should mark the last time Hugh Jackman is Wolverine and which the role that launched his international career 17 years ago. Mm. And broadening our idea of culture and what we cover on the uh, the show, I thought oh, it was finally, worth drawing... yes. <laughs> finally yes. going to broaden our horizons. <laughs> That's right. We're actually going to do um, what's playing at the Opera House. No, this Ooh. is no. <laughs> actually, you may. We're going to the other end of the spectrum. Um, you may or may not have seen this ad. It's been doing the rounds this week, but I think it's worth talking about. The Federal Department of Finance. Uh, oh, that their, video. Uh, their well-made ad mm. on on how to actually uh, encouraging people to basically take up a position with the Federal Department of Finance. <laughs> uh, they spent basically $40,000 on mark- a marketing campaign that has attracted incredible attention. So money well spent, one would think, except that anybody who sees the ad probably won't, won't going to want to work mm, for them. Yeah, it attracted uh, a lot of negative reaction. If you, ha- mm. if you don't know what we're talking about, this is basically an ad where the new recruits are given the opportunity to write the dialogue uh, and tell their own story. It basically ends up being incredibly cringeworthy. It's full of wooden scripted performances. Uh, Basically, they're using their own staff. This is something I always warn clients against. Never go with actors. At least they know what they're doing. Um, I love the particular line, Hey, guys, I'm just heading downstairs for my paleo pear and banana bread. Would you like to join me? (laughs) (laughs) Every office in the country is talking about that. If you haven't seen it, Help them get the most out of their $40,000. Why not Google it online? All right. Let's get to some uh, true or false action about uh, Mr. Wolverine. Mm, Yeah. Logan. Logan, the review is coming. Before we get there, though, here's a true or false statement about Wolverine. In order to play that chiseled X-Men character, Hugh Jackman endured a harrowing diet of chicken, spinach, and cauliflower over a 17-year period. Apparently for 17 years, that's all he ate. And after recently announcing that Logan was his last Wolverine movie, as we just mentioned, how did he celebrate the end of this diet? Was it with (laughs) A, a double cheeseburger, fries, and triple choc sundae, or B, a massive bowl of spaghetti arabiata, or C, with a quad stack of blueberry pancakes and maple syrup from the Clinton Street Baking Company in NYC? A, B, or C, how did Hugh Jackman celebrate the finale of his performance in Logan? We'll find out. 
after we talk about this. Can't we throw in paleo pear and banana bread? <laughs> <laughs> no, not going to happen. Okay. Well, when we look for titles to review in our what, our what Your Kids Are Watching segment, it's not just the littlies we're looking after. We try and have an eye out for all the members of your family and parents of teenage daughters, this one today is for you. Before I Fall is about four teenage girls who are at the top of their game in their final year of high school. And one in particular, Samantha, who realises that they might not be as nice as they think they are. The drama lies in how she comes to get a really good look at herself. A godlike power determines she will repeat the same day over and over until she realises for herself who she really is. What are you doing? What happened last night? What are you talking about? I've been having deja vu all day long. Are you okay? It wasn't a dream. It really happened. Again. The only way to escape is to change. Watch out for the trap. What trap? (laughs) I had to do something that would make a difference. Basically, think Groundhog Day meets Final Destination. Zoe Deutsch plays Samantha Kingston, a teenage girl who's part of a sharp-dressing, sharp-tongued little brat pack that sort of runs this particular high school. And from the outside, these four girls actually look really quite pleasant and and lovely. But as you get to know them through the film, you realise they're anything but. They're in their final year of school. It's Valentine's Day, but this isn't going to be a day that ends soon for Sam. Uh, Some unknown power has decreed that she will live and relive this day over over and over and over again until she learns what she's supposed to take from that 24 hours. This is one that's definitely not a comedy, though. It's not like, uh, it's nothing like Groundhog Day. It's more like Donnie Darko in its mm. tone, okay? It's more than a few variations. The perpetual Valentine's Day ends up with lots of people dead, okay? So we're not going in for the laughs on this one. But it is a very insightful and touching film at the same time. But the, the central concept still does remind us a lot I think of Groundhog Day you just mentioned it's, it's not a comedy and you said it's like a bunch of other movies but it mm. really sounds like this is hitting on the Groundhog Day idea so does Sam this lead character in this film learn the same kind of lessons that Bill Murray did in that film that she's just got to be nice that's what it's all about yeah, she's got to be I nice mean, you'd think that wouldn't it because many of these films are like um, oh okay I've just got to become a better person Okay, I've just got to improve myself somehow. And Before I Fall is definitely about putting aside the selfishness that, you know, makes us who we are often. Uh, And even then, though, you actually find out that she's still stuck in this day. Like, Mm. she actually becomes a better person. Um, She becomes a better person towards her parent and a better parent and a better person towards her sister and to her friends and all this stuff. But the day doesn't end still. And so she realized there's something else at play. So the story that is being put forward the lesson what we're meant to be learning then is more about consequences because as far as I understand it Sam she's got choices within this loop yeah, that she's, she's living out locked it's not like it's going to do exactly the same right, thing right. no matter so what she does so before I fall must be about consequences yeah yeah Okay, so Tell us more. Well, Please explain to me. I haven't seen this movie. Please okay. explain to me. Well, it's one of those things that Before I Fall really does well. There are lots of social issues the film likes to cover too. So instead of it just being about character, this is a film that kind of unpacks all the sorts of things that your teens should be thinking about. So they're, they're, it's talking about underage sex. You know, was the con- in one particular variation of the day, um, what's the consequences of if she indulges in that way? Um, or it talks about youth suicide. What happens if Sam behaves 
behaves a certain way, how does that affect other people? It even deals with homophobia. I mean, Sam really explores a whole range of issues. It's like lining up all of your um, must-talk-about topics mm. in one film and going one after another. And in that respect, it's very socially conscious. It's kind of teaching teens they can't just live for now. Decisions they make will shape their lives and shape the lives of others. So it's hitting a lot of subject matter, but what is this film really all about, Mark? Tell yeah. us. Well, without giving Please away... Please tell us. I know, it's interesting because it's like, is it about this? No. Is it about this? No. It's got a lot of this, but no. Look, um, without giving the film away, Sam has to learn that it's not enough to be good. Okay, and that's really interesting. It's not enough to be good to the people around you. Uh, in fact, if you really want to be good, sometimes you're asked to be good to those that you don't want to be around, that you don't like, that maybe have not done anything to help you, that are actually not nice people That's themselves. It's quite the distinct message. I know, mm. yeah. So instead, it's really, it really pulls out, ultimately, a Christian concept of love. Because love is not one that looks at the, as far as the Bible says, it looks at... Um, the person says, you are worthy of my love, which is what the first sort of two-thirds of Before I Fall kind of deals with. Oh, okay, I've really got to love the people who love me. No, this is actually about loving people who you don't necessarily love, who you may not get anything back. That's what being good is really all about. Uh, I think it's fantastic when you go into the, the film. If I had a teenage daughter, I'd be watching this one with her. Before I Fall stars Zoe Deutsch, uh, Halston Sage, Jennifer Beals. It's rated M for mature themes and coarse language and is showing now in cinemas across this teenage trampled nation. Okay, from Before I Fall back to Wolverine. After Hugh Jackman recently announced that Logan was his last Wolverine movie, how did he celebrate the end of the special diet that he went on to be that X-Men character? Did he celebrate with A, a double cheeseburger, fries and a triple choc sundae, or B a massive bowl of spaghetti arrabbiata, or C, with a quad stack of blueberry pancakes and maple syrup from, specifically, the Clinton mm. Street Baking Company in NYC. C. You're going with the, the pancakes. I'm actually going to... I'm not going to do the spaghetti, for sure, because that's carb-loading, and maybe he was building up <laughs> anyway, right? Okay, so I'm going to go with the double cheeseburger because there's no nutritional value in it. Oh, you guys, way off. Uh, B, carb-loading, oh, carb-loading, a massive carb bowl loading. of pasta, wow. and it was served to him on the Jimmy Fallon show. Oh. I'm, pr- I'm sure Jimmy Fallon cooked it up. Yes, <laughs> of course. Well, coming up on the big picture, we're going to get the beasts out of the cage. No, not Mark and Ben, <laughs> but Wolverine uh, and King Kong as we discuss their latest big screen adventures. Welcome back. Here we are at the soundtrack segment for this week, and we thought we'd take a look at a song from Sing, that animation film about a musical competition. Let's start with Shake It Off.
now I'm pretty certain we know where it goes to from here. So that's basically from Sing, the animation. Now, Mark, um, why are we playing that song apart from it's ridiculously infectious and you're not going to get it out of your head for the rest of the day? It wasn't Sing, the animated musical, out at cinemas late, late last year. Uh, and yes. I know we're not always timely here on The Big Picture, <laughs> but your soundtrack's a choice for this week. I'm a little bit curious about why we're flashing back about three months ago when Sing was at cinemas. Clearly, you don't spend enough time wandering the shelves of your local DVD Blu-ray purchase place. Do they, they still think, exist? Uh, yes, they do. They do, yep. I'm, I've got a vast collection of plastic I like to show no, the people the when shops, I come over. No, the shops, the shops. Yes, the actual shops do. Um, so, uh, Sing is actually coming out uh, in this fortnight. and so Oh, if you're on interested Home in getting... Entertainment release. Yes. Okay, uh, please continue. And uh, quite a big quite a big film actually for last year and so obviously a great one to actually drag up for your kids as well uh, but Taylor Swift's song well Shake It Off is a song recorded by American singer Taylor Swift from her fifth album called 1989 written by Swift Max Martin and Shellback it's an up-tempo dance pop track considered to be a departure from Swift's earlier country pop music style so we figured why not throw it out there for the kids isn't and the Taylor Swift about like 12 years old like I can't believe she had an earlier <laughs> career as a country singer now like she's in her later years is like really changed the way she sounds like I can't believe people are talking about Taylor Swift in the retrospect well she has said something quite similar about that has in she? Her song yes she was talking about this song she said I've learned a pretty tough lesson that people like Ben McKechn can say whatever they want about <laughs> us at any time and we cannot control that the only thing we can control is our reaction to it so from a constri- uh, Christian perspective that's not a bad little moral to take away X-Men fans are going to have to check their expectations at the door for another superhero slam fest when they line up to see the latest film in the franchise, Logan, because it's less growl and more howl. Could you say that again? Less growl <laughs> and more howl. Less growl and more howl. Yes, mm-hmm. Logan is a story about what happens to immortal and invincible heroes when their humanity finally catches up with them. Australian icon Hugh Jackman and writer-director James Mangold have brought to the screen a more visceral, emotional tale about Wolverine and Professor X growing old. It's a fitting finish for Hugh Jackman's Wolverine and a moving reminder that we will all have to face our mortality someday. We got ourselves an X-Men fan. Maybe a quarter of it happened. And not like this. In the real world, people die. Logan. I don't want to talk about it. Logan. Just stop. Be careful. I need the girl. What girl? Go get her. Logan is the eighth and final time that Hugh Jackman will take the big screen as one of Marvel Comics' most iconic heroes. However, the situation in which viewers find him is anything but heroic. The film is set in 2029, approximately 50 years after the events depicted in X-Men Days of Future Past. So if you're a fan of the franchise you've been following, now you know where you basically fit. Logan is earning a meagre living as a limousine driver. A limousine driver? I know. Oh, how the mighty can fall. This is not so much Days of Future Past as Days of past past (laughs) so he's he's basically living dividing his time between driving around um prom dates uh and and getting drunk okay and when you see him finally uh move into you know what seems to be his personal space it's on the mexican border where he's taking care of charles xavier um who's suffering from some debilitating mental disease professor Professor x yeah professor x the most powerful brain in the world has now become the most dangerous brain in the world because of a degenerative disease and so he's largely kept drugged uh and that's the meager almost forgotten existence that they're all living out but they're slightly 
slide into the grave is kind of arrested when a desperate woman asks them to help them with the final mutant child who has been discovered. You know, and so that's that's the plot set up. And Professor X is Patrick Stewart again? Yep, Patrick okay. Stewart's back again yep. for his final run as Professor X. Okay, now before we dive a little bit further into this story of Logan, will X-Men fans actually be disappointed by Logan because it's a bit of a different beast from other X-Men this, movies. I can't even begin to tell you how different this is from other X-Men films. It might as well be on a shelf of its own. It's a fantastic film, though. Now, look, I, I was a, a fan of the X-Men franchise, but this is completely different. Even and, X-Men Apocalypse from last year? Okay, I was a fan of everything but the last X-Men What about that fil- third X-Men movie okay, in the original let's not get into the, <laughs> the first Wolverine film, that, was, that wasn't so good either. Okay. Yeah, and even the second one was a bit... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Concentrate just for a moment on Please. Logan, okay, yes. which is a very good film. Yes. Okay, right. <laughs> Why? Um, because, look, for those people who are just captivated by the wham and bam of those sort of uh, comic book films, they're not going to find it as interesting. But Logan is both more and less of what X-Men fans have come to expect. I mean, it, it's um, it, it's got a great deal of violence in it. Okay, so I want to be clear about that. MA15 plus people, be clear. Uh, but this violence is more... Um, realistic and 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 it's even got sort of gravity with it as opposed to the sort of the way that violence is just kind of generally thrown around in x-men films more like an indie film kind of yeah, vibe much that's more sort of like an indie more, film. more intense yeah in fact um mangold who directed it said that uh, we wanted to go out with a bang but the, the thing is once you've destroyed cities and planets you mm. know you have to earn your bang in a different way and the result is ex- an extremely human story about the struggle to preserve purpose and identity and the limitations of age as it closes in an extremely human story about what the struggle to, you said, preserve purpose yeah. and identity. And Whoa. identity, yeah. I yeah. mean, it is really a thoughtful film. Um, there's serious stuff that comes into play, uh, and that's what makes the film so identifiable, too, because the weird thing is, uh, it's escapism when we watch X-Men normally. Okay, we're all imagining what it might be like to to have those sort of superpowers, or you choose in your own head which character you'd most like to be, or something like that. But here, these are our characters. I mean, Logan is caring for an old friend, kind of like a prodigal son returned. Um, Professor X is dying. It's not pretty. Uh, but then so, too, is Logan. Logan. Logan is being po- poisoned by the very adamantium sort of skeleton he's got. Is that why he's aging on screen? I yeah, wanted to know yeah, that. I've been anymore. seeing in the clips, like he, Hugh Jackman actually finally looks his age a little bit. Yeah, yeah. A little bit. But I thought Wolverine couldn't age. Yeah, well, this is the thing. He's actually being poisoned by the sort of super skeletal structure that they ah, inserted in him. Ah. And the result, um, and you've got then Daphne Keen plays Laura as this. Um, mutant who's been created genetically and um and she is actually there's this really strange family dynamic that's set up sounds got, like it yeah, yeah. you've got uh, professor x's dad you've got um uh logan as the sort of um prodigal son and you've also then got daphne who's the daughter he never knew he had uh, and it turns into a road trip even though there's this overarching thing of um let's get ourselves out of here it's a road trip of investigating what we're going to leave behind and what's most important. And you think all of these things come together. You've got a road trip X-Men movie about serious like family dynamics as well as ultraviolence. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is... It is all really, of that comes together in one movie. It's really weird. It's really, it, it is... You've got to go see it. And all I can say is, hey, opening weekend has blown away the cinemas. People who mm. go see this, go tell other people about it because what you have is just a real thoughtful piece. Now, you talked a lot about uh, humanity in this film. That's really what they're hitting uh, in this film. Does it make you question your own mortality watching Logan? Yeah, indeed it does. I think that's a fair summary. Because in- you also have animantium, <laughs> like a skeletal uh, structure, Mark. <laughs> nice You one. are a particularly like buff individual, nice, very strong man. Nice maybe, wise guy. Maybe it's that's because... because- 
It's because, like you, and maybe sooner, we're all going to die. Okay? <laughs> and, and that's really what the film is all about. You know, um, there's this interesting line where in which Logan has to confront his own arrogance. Okay, and he actually says, you know, we always thought we were God's plan. Maybe we were God's mistake. Uh, and Whoa. I know, and it's not to say uh, he doesn't really major in on it. It's all God's fault or anything like that. What he's actually saying is that there's a certain arrogance in the way we've pursued our life. Mm. We always thought we were going to be strong. We always thought we were just going to keep going on and on and on. But the truth is, we are all going to die. Uh, and this is very much what the film is about. We live in an age where old age itself has been relegated to uh, retirement homes. You know, we can pack old age away so we don't see it around us, so to speak. And death itself. You know, when you go to a funeral, have you noticed these days that most funerals are not even about death? They're a celebration of the life that was before. You know, we are living in a society that actually in no way confronts death. And so um, this is a really welcome thing. Logan's saying basically we're all going to go and we're going to leave something behind. And what is it that we're going to leave behind? And I think personally, mm. I mean, Logan doesn't go as far as to ever get to embracing someone who can take you beyond death and into eternity. But he does confront the issue of what was my life about and what will it amount to? Logan is currently carving up cinemas across Australia. And be warned, as Mark said, it is rated MA15 plus for strong, bloody violence. It stars Hugh Jackman, Patrick Stewart, Daphne Keane, and also Keith Jardine as Reva number eight. Reva number yeah, eight. Yes, might, yeah, yes, this, Keith Jardine is back. Yeah, you might remember <laughs> him from uh, such roles as Jurassic World, where he played stunt performer 12. Oh, that Keith Jardine. That Keith Jardine, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is just my attempt to make sure that people notice the little guys in this film. Wow, good on you, Keith. <laughs> Though <laughs> Keith is six foot four and mass, very square. He right. might be the next Wolverine. He, he could he, he could, could be. be. Watch but it this space. too soon, Sam, too soon <laughs> we're talking about space. that. Um, also, watch our space over on Facebook find us the Big Picture Show on Facebook like us if you haven't already and if you haven't already I don't know what you're doing just like get over there and like us and tell us when you're there what we should do on our 100th show now you uh, I'm sure are being uh, listening to us all throughout these programs particularly at the start when we list off what episode we're up to we're now up to episode 98 which means in two episodes time we turn 100 go to our Facebook page and let us know what we should do on that show. Such as you might have a suggestion like the hundred times Mark was right, and you might want to list those out on Facebook, and then we'll just read them out on air. Or maybe our top five segment could turn into the top one hundred segment, and somehow in ten minutes we try to rattle off the top one hundred something something. I don't know what your idea might be. Tell us over at Facebook at the Big Picture Show. Find us and tell us. All right, coming up on the Big Picture, there is a rumble in the jungle. Not Wolverine. No, it's Kong on Skull Island. Welcome back. Skull Island. I, I love saying that. Yes, you do. I want to. I want to go on a holiday to Skull Island, but I'm actually talking about the new Kong film. Uh, Lord of the Rings director Peter Jackson brought the great ape King Kong back on our screens in 2005, but now, more than a decade later, with Oscar winner Brie Larson and cool cat Samuel L. Jackson, Kong is back. But what monkey business is he up to this time? What the hell is this place? That's Kong. He's king around here. Kong's pretty good king. Keeps to himself mostly. Well, you don't go into someone's house and start dropping bombs unless you're picking a fight. Kong's god on the island, but the devils live below us. And what are they called? I call them skull crawlers. Why? Never said that name out loud before. It sounds stupid now that I say just. You call him whatever you want. 
1973, gentlemen, there's a former British SAS captain, James Conrad, played by Tom Hiddleston, who's hired by a government agent, Bill Rander, who's played by John Goodman, to guide an expedition to map out an uncharted island in the Pacific Ocean known only as Skull Island. That's where it is. That's that's right. It's in the Pacific. You might might have heard of it in the hushed tones. Skull Island. Why is it called Skull Island? It's because... I don't know. I'm not even sure that's even explained in the film, but we'll get to that okay, a little bit. Sure. We'll, we may get to that a little bit later on. <laughs> also on this uh, this mission is Lieutenant Colonel Preston Packard, played by Samuel L. Jackson, who leads this like squadron of helicopter pilots. Uh, and there's also, for some reason, a photojournalist, Mason Weaver, Brie Larson, who's on this expedition. They go along to the island, and as you can imagine, given the film is called Kong, Skull Island, they may, in fact, meet the king of the jungle, King Kong, when they get to Skull Island. I, I don't know where to begin. How does this stack up as a monster film? Um, I, there's, a, there's a lot going for it, I think, in terms of big mainstream blockbuster entertainment. I think the film visually looks fantastic. I didn't see it in 3D, but it is out in 3D. Uh, but it's a really kind of sumptuous feast, I think, to, to look at. It reminded me a lot often as a, of a movie poster in a good way. It's just this this beautiful rendering, computer-generated effects, all that kind of stuff they expect from this kind of movie. Um I actually preferred the King Kong, the Peter Jackson version, than than this one. I thought it had a bit more life in it. The characters were a bit more interesting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. One of the downsides of this Kong Kong Skull Island is that for a monster movie, it's like the monsters are pretty cool, but the the characters eh, largely like who cares? I think it's a deliberate decision though from the filmmakers. They they were trying to make I think almost like a stereotypical version of an action movie and chuck in certain characters that do certain things in these kind of movies, almost a bit tongue in cheek, like they're trying to have a bit of a laugh. But that- it gets a little bit wooden, particularly the Tom Hiddleston and Brie Larson characters. They're just like like largely wasted. But on the movie monster front. If you want to go in and see massive creatures, because Skull Island is basically land of the lost, so you get all these things from flying birds to other kind of dinosaur reptile creatures fighting against Kong. If you want to go and see big things fight against each other, <laughs> Kong Skull Island offers that. Okay, well, you're selling it. You're really yeah. selling it. Okay, look, um, this is, let me see if I can drag us back to a more considered point. Uh, this is set at the end of the Vietnam War, so it's not a present day thing. It's not like they just rocked up to Skull Island now. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. So, um, what, Would have been a much that, different story. Is there is there any particular connection with the Vietnam War or any I, reason why they'd stick it at that point? I thought the main reason seemed to be so the people behind this film could make a homage to all these cool Vietnam War movies, particularly Apocalypse Now yeah. and The Deer Hunter, very famous films around the Vietnam War and constantly through Kong Skull Island, from the poster when you walk in to, like, to the cinema for mm. Kong Skull Island to uh, a scene that's very reminiscent of uh, the famous Ride of the Valkyrie sequence from Apocalypse Now where helicopters kind of charge into the jungle. You get that almost like shot for shot in this film, but instead now you've got Kong that they're going they're going up against. And one of the main characters in this film is even dressed like characters in The Deer Hunter right down to the headband that he wears. So it's like this really expensive homage to cool movies that you've seen in the past. That seems like a key reason why it's set um, during the Vietnam War. There's also... I think a little bit of an attempt 
to uh, have a go at how even though we can advance through humans can advance through time and uh, become a bit more technologically savvy and discover all kinds of stuff like uh, you know weaponry or get a man to the moon or whatever it might be at the same time we constantly kind of tear away at ourselves and try to destroy ourselves Mm. as well so i think that the the setting in the vietnam war is meant to kind of bring us back to that but Often, I just thought, oh, it's basically an excuse also just to play cool songs from the 70s, yeah. which have been in heaps of movies and TV shows about Already. the Vietnam War as well. So, it didn't add too much to it, I didn't think, apart from you get characters like Samuel L. Jackson's Colonel in this, who, for my money, uh, he, he just went a bit too hammy and a bit too over the top, a bit too Samuel L. Jackson in this role. <laughs> the best thing about the film, I think, on the, on the human front is this uh, character, Hank Marlowe, who John C. Riley plays. It would have been great if this movie was way more about him. He's this guy who has been hiding out on this island since World War II, trying to get off the island, and he's everything from just kind of bonkers to really, really serious about the human condition. I thought he was the heartbeat of Kong Skull Island, and I, I wish I've, there was more of him. I've seen the clips this he actually sounds like he's got all the best lines mate he like, definitely he definitely does and and for a film that's trying to be deliberately tongue-in-cheek and funny at various points it only really raises laughs when john c Riley gets on stage and starts doing his thing he's fantastic now can i just ask i have a theory about this okay, okay. i'm starting to take from your review that you really don't believe there are huge gigantic uh, monkeys out there somewhere. I wasn't tearing. convinced by Kong no. Skull Island, and it's um, it, it, it was a very it, it was a very thorough scientific explanation of what was going on on that island and how there's big holes under the earth and that primitive creatures are, are, are filled with toxic waste and then they emerge on on this island. Don't seem to ever get off the island, but they they stay on the island and fight each other. And, and Kong pretty much is like the savior of the island. Sure, it was very uh, they explained that very well, but no, I still didn't come away <laughs> believing in that theory. Mark. So I'm going to I'm going to, I mean I realize you know and we don't believe in death stuff either and stuff like that but there's a certain suspension of reality that we experience <laughs> it's um, called kong skull island yeah, yes I well i reckon um i don't think we can do these films anymore i actually Whoa, think that you've these, called it yeah i'm gonna go i'm gonna say the day of the giant thing is over uh, i don't uh, think that's true i don't, I don't think so well, I think these uh, okay will, okay these will keep trotting out yeah think godzilla Yes, oh, that that was awful. But hey, but, are they, okay, I oh, enjoyed Sam Godzilla. Did you? You were the it. one person uh, okay, who enjoyed okay, Godzilla. Sam, Pacific Rim. Oh, that was awful. Yeah, okay. yeah. It's it's just because I don't think like big gigantic walking things is kind of like a, a product of of nineteen thirties nineteen forties filmmaking. I don't yeah. know if we can do these stories anymore. It was it was basic animatronics and it was yeah, very yeah, basic yeah. special effects, and now we're just past the idea. I, I think if you, if you just do something inventive with the story, there's a chance that you can make a good monster movie. This film does become uh, the more Kong fights towards the end, just a big CGI explosion on screen. If you want to go and watch that, sure. It's it doesn't really engage you, but it's it's spectacle. So I think if the storyline could be good enough, it's like anything, though, right? If the storyline's good enough, you can actually make another one of these films. Let's talk about Kong. He's not a royal anymore, I, I believe, from the title. He's just <laughs> Kong, not He's king. Had his, had his title stripped. Yeah. Uh, so that's one thing I have. The Republican uh, One question Kong. I have about this movie. But the other one is that is he actually a bad guy in this film or is he just misunderstood? That's a great question. Uh, I'll try not to give too much away about what goes on in the film, but uh, it's more on the misunderstood side side of things. I don't think that's too much of a spoiler. And really, who the bad guys are, and I, this shouldn't come as a huge shock to us and to anyone who's ever watched a movie, humans, 
Humans are the bad guys. What? Humans are the problem. And oh, they're going to hang it around our neck again just because we're picking on 90-foot-tall monkeys. That's right. Uh, oh. it's, it, I think what, one of the things Kong Skull Island left me thinking about was how humans always look for an enemy. We're constantly kind of threatened by what isn't us. And we, instead of, you know, like reaching out with a hand of friendship, we usually come with a gun or come with something. We want to get on top. Mm. We want to just become superior and the, and the dominant, like, race creature around. Uh, I think it just basically upholds the Bible's constant refrain that we want to be in control and that's our chief problem. So if you want to take away something deeper from Kong Skull Island, if you do want to take away something deeper from it and not just giant monkey business and things going bananas on screen, I think it's a constant reiteration that as humans, we are our own worst enemy because we constantly look to dominate something else. Okay, well, Kong Skull Island in 3D stars Brie Larson, Tom Hiddleston, Samuel L. Jackson, John Goodman and a giant ape. And for the record, those people are about to write me the emails. Yes, I know he wasn't a monkey. That was just in the more generic sense. Okay, it opened at cinemas last Thursday and is rated M for sustained threat, action violence and coarse language. Well, coming up on the big picture, from monkey business to the business of satisfaction, what the Bible has to say about not getting what you want and also the top five most disappointing movie experiences of all time. Hey, thanks for joining us. Very soon, I'll be listing off the top five most disappointing movie experiences of all time. But before we get to that... Yes, well, in our last break, you might have heard Ben McKeckin taking us to the Pacific location of Skull Island. Skull Island! (laughs) Where a team of scientists learn you don't always get what you want. Unless, of course, what you want is a flock of prehistoric birds that will rip your arms off. Oh, yeah, there was that moment in (laughs) that, yes, that does happen. Mm, Yes. That happens in Jurassic Park, Jurassic World, I think, as well. Yeah, I think this this was the poor cousin. (laughs) I think the message is stay away from birds. All right, but birds aside, how do we cope with the disappointment? Not the movie, but when life doesn't live up to our expectations. Well, thankfully, we've got Bible Society Australia CEO and social commentator Greg Clark on call to tell us what the Bible has to say about not getting what you want. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, the Apostle Paul asks himself a question. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, he says, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is a challenge for human beings, isn't it? We're all looking for the stamp of approval. Well, just as well for us at Bible Society that we know this verse because the stamp of approval is precisely what we didn't get recently from Australia Post. Stamps are big business. They may have passed their heyday, but some 60 million people are avid collectors around the world. And even if you haven't sent a stamp for a while, you've no doubt got a few favourite commemorative stamps lying around, maybe a special set to celebrate a sporting victory or some particular anniversary. So it may actually surprise you to discover that it's not permissible in Australia to depict a religious organisation on a stamp. I have to confess, I was stunned and baffled when I read the stamps policy from Australia Post and had it confirmed in writing to me that this is the case. Now, please don't misinterpret me. This is not an outcry about religious persecution. Other groups like political parties and businesses also cannot be depicted on stamps, nor can, quote, any subject likely to cause public division. And there's the problem. By making Don't Rock the Boat the principle, Australians miss out on the breadth and character of our history and culture at least when it comes to stamps. Why are we so timid in this area when so many aspects of our society thrive on celebrating difference and making a loud noise about diversity? Well, from the position of birthday revelers, we at Bible Society don't really mind. Culture changes and ours is a very diverse one. 
And you can still get Christmas stamps with delightful biblical imagery on them from the nativity stories. There's no need to rise up in vehement protest. But to ignore the role of religious organisations in our colourful changing society really does skew reality and makes people unnecessarily fearful of issues where we hold different views. Better, in my view, to have it all out in the open, on our envelopes and anywhere else we do our communicating. All we want to do is stamp the place for good. And you can check out more from Bible Society Australia, actually, with videos of the celebration of Bible Society Australia's 200th birthday, including coverage of the special birthday beer made by Coopers. Yes, you heard me right. Bible Society Australia has cooperated with Coopers to get their own beer. The Uh, Bible and beer. You Mm -hmm. You should check this out. The Bible and beer, light beer, of course. Light Yes. Yes, there we go. Check it all out at eternitynews.com.au. Well, because I press the buttons here at the big picture, I always get what I want, and that's always (laughs) the top five. So that's what we're going to do right now. Ben McKechn, don't be disappointing me. Sam, have I ever? Nah. That's another top five, actually. (laughs) (laughs) You don't always answer my calls, but apart from that. uh, I was busy that that particular time. Okay, let's dive into it, gentlemen, for the top five most disappointing movie experiences ever. Five. Back in the year 2003, I was still living in Adelaide. I was working for the (laughs) Advertiser newspaper. I was a film writer at that paper. It was a pretty cool job. And often I would get flown to exotic locations like Sydney. I would get flown (laughs) to Sydney, a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed film writer who got put up in fancy hotels, shipped across to apartments that are next to the Opera House in Sydney to go and meet famous people such as Agent Smith... Hugo Weaving from the mm. Matrix films and Neo himself, Keanu Reeves. I was sitting in the same Canoe. room with those guys getting to interview them. This has been 2003, so you might be able to cast your minds back and remember that the original Matrix film was released a few years before that. Brilliant. Event. 2003, what was being promoted at the time was The Matrix Reloaded and Revolutions, the two sequels for The Matrix films, which do come in at number five on the most disappointing movie experiences of my life after how big The Matrix was. And then maybe it was just part of like being flown across the country and getting to meet <laughs> these cool guys and all this expectation and, and then going into the cinema and watching those sequels. And just what was like, your first question? It, why? Why? Uh, why? I uh, thankfully didn't see the movies until after oh, speaking with the actors. Clever, so at that, at that stage, it was still a lot of expectation, a lot of hype, a lot of like, oh, great. And they were talking it up. And I think we were talking it up, the the people interviewing them. And then uh, do you guys remember those sequels? Do you remember mm. going into the cinema and watching them? I needed a chart afterwards to try and follow the, the obscure French philosophy references that sort of clouded both films. Yeah. And I'm yeah. a philosophy major. Like, I'm just sitting there just going, <laughs> what? Yeah, I didn't make it to the third. I No, I think a lot of other people um, started, like, switching off at around that point, too. Uh, look, I do remember some weird rave and kind of sexual scene in Revolutions, I think, that was enough to sear disappointment deep into the, my heart and I think of any Matrix fan, film fan's heart. It got so bloated and self-important, it was a huge disappointment. Four. I get the feeling we're just going to go downhill till we find, find the biggest <laughs> disappointment. That, that's, like, that, that's right. It's quite the upbeat list, uh, chaps, this week. It's difficult. Hang with us, people. It only gets worse it's from here. It's difficult to put a spring in your step when you're talking about disappointments. Um, and as you may be able to start gathering, a lot of these are personal disappointments, but I'm sure you can feel my angst as I share these, these tales from my cinematic life. 
back in 1998 when I was in New York City for the first time as the city of Woody Allen and Martin Scorsese and Home Alone 2. And me being a cinema fan, I wanted to go to the cinema and see something great. Now, I distinctly remember what was on offer at the cinema that I went to with my girlfriend at the time. There were two choices that we had at the at the time slot we were looking to go in. One was this cool indie film with Willem Dafoe and Nick Nolte called Affliction which I still haven't seen to this day, which mm. would indicate to you that we didn't see Affliction. What did um, you replace a cool My suggestion Nick Nolte was shot with. down of cool indie film with Willem Dafoe and Nick Nolte. Instead, my girlfriend at the time decided Shakespeare in Love would be a better choice <laughs> to go to see at the cinema. <laughs> oh, so at number God. four wow. of most disappointing movie experiences of my life, Shakespeare in Love in 1998, because I was in one of the world cities of movies and I saw that uninteresting overrated, dull, ridiculous fantasy rom-com mashup thing, Shakespeare in Love. Yeah. Oh, oh gosh. I'm, I'm still hurting. Now. My heart I, still hurts. It's, this is a crossover uh, with my list of top five most disappointing Oscar moments. But this thing actually picked up an Academy Award at all. It, yeah. You know, it was yeah. just, it's crazy. All, all, all of that. All of that. Yeah. Tip. Topped off by the fact that I was in New York City to do that. Um, the, the good news is a couple of years later, I went back to New York and I watched The 40-Year-Old Virgin in the cinema and felt much better about myself. <laughs> Three. Not for any kind of personal no, reason. No, I was just wondering. Just because the movie is really there. funny and really good. That was less disappointing. Let's move on to... Uh, also in the year 2003, it turns out 2003 was a really disappointing year in my life. Um, and, and We're this, laughing at that. This, I, yeah, I, thank I you very it. much. Yeah, thanks. Thanks I, for... for uh, like, this This list was difficult enough, let alone your, your, top, your chuckling. Top uh, five sad moments in your family's life. life. Uh, you might be uh, surprised to discover that more than the Matrix sequels, I found disappointing another sequel that year, Legally Blonde 2. <laughs> Red, white, and blonde. Yes. How is it that you just... Why do you see these films? Uh, like, what did you go, go back, see go back to the bit where I was too. a professional film reviewer oh, actually, at the yeah, time. I know this. It was my full-time mm, yeah. gig. I was expected <laughs> to go along to these these films. And, and Legally Blonde one was good. That's I, I didn't actually expect you to say that. No, I, was. I thought I was going to be the one defender in the room of Legally Blonde and say that film was fantastic, was like good. funny, smart, and sassy. Yeah, and I was so excited when they made a musical out of it. <laughs> where were you? <laughs> I, I I wasn't so much, but maybe that's because I did see Legally Blonde too. Now I don't remember too much about it, which is like. Maybe Revolutions and Reloaded, which is a lot like a lot of disappointing films, isn't it? You remember the overall vibe and how basically you you were let down horribly, but you don't remember too much about it. I do remember that Sally Field turned up in it, that great American actress, and I think she was some kind of mentor figure for Reese Witherspoon's character, and it had something to do with, was it Congress? Like somehow, honestly, you're looking at me like I know. <laughs> you, you outed yourself as a legally blonde uh, as a fan. As a legally thought, blonde fan, but I, I gave away the tickets to Legally Blonde too. Sometimes you just got to know when to cut and run. Yeah, and it's one of those movies that uh, you might have found this yourself, Mark, when you're going into bat for Legally Blonde for the naysayers that might snigger and sneer at it, and you want to stand up and say, "No, Legally Blonde was a great film," and I'm still a bloke, and I'm saying that. Mm. But Legally Blonde too just made me feel a bit dirty actually for standing up so much for the original film. I got my hair bleached after Legally Blonde one. Two. True story. <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't quite sure how to pick one movie out of this entire franchise, so I just went for the whole thing because one of the most disappointing movie experiences <laughs> of my life. I've just seen what you've written on the script. Yeah, yeah. You, you're, looking, you're looking at the script. I yeah. am. But this is more. This is more of a personal statement about myself. 
At number two on the most disappointing movie experience of my life, the Star Wars franchise. There, there you go, Where's people. the door? Just Here's the, the door. Star Wars franchise. Stop for a moment. We'll take that in. Your second most disappointing experience of all is every Star Wars film. Yeah, yeah. You want to know why? Yeah, please. Come on, you must, you must want to know uh, why. I'm, I'm, Where's Russ Matthews? I think so, he's got a job <laughs> next so, week. Go back to the bit where um, I've loved movies since I was a kid. Yeah. Um, I've been able to, I'm very grateful for this, been able to review movies for a long time, both on a full-time basis and now more of a part-time basis. Seen loads and loads of movies and I understand full well the place that Star Wars, the entire franchise, has in the position of movie history. Yes. And yet... Mm-hmm. I've been unable to make myself get into Star Wars films, even the original trilogy, which I like, but I understand as soon as I just say I like Star Wars that I sound like a hater because <laughs> I'm not enthusing about how I want to base my life on Star Wars teachings, which it seems like so many people do. So why My son, Anakin, is going to be so upset by what <laughs> so you So disappointed by what I'm saying. I realise I'm a disappointment to people. Be- <laughs> particularly I, given I used to work at Empire Magazine and some of Empire's bread and butter was Star Wars. If you put Star Wars on the cover of Empire Magazine, that thing sold like hotcakes. Mm. And so you're expected whenever you front and say, oh, I'm a film reviewer, of course you must instantly love Star Wars, but I don't. Mm. I appreciate it and respect it and I can sense the disappointment in the room. Hence why (laughs) it's on the list of most disappointing movie moments in my life. But it's not as disappointing as... Wait. One. What could possibly top one of the biggest franchises well, in I, film I have no idea. I'm waiting history. for the bomb to drop. This, and I think this is a, an even bigger admission about myself and how, oh my how it turns out, Sam, I can be a disappointment in life. 2011's The Tree of Life. The Tree of Life, the Terrence Malick film that Brad Pitt and Sean Penn and Jessica Chastain were in. A lot of people might not remember it that well. I remember it vividly. I remember (laughs) sitting in the cinema for, what, two and a half hours, I think, and being incredibly bored and thinking this movie is pretentious and overblown and I've no idea what's going on. And I don't. It was like Baraka with dialogue. And I, yeah, and I don't think it knows what's going on. I think it's just trying to show off and all these kind of things. So I went away and wrote reviews to that effect. And I even went on radio programs like this one to that effect and trying just, to stop people see the film <laughs> I was basically banging on about how bad this film was and how pretentious and silly and all this sort of thing until people started talking to me about it afterwards and explaining the movie to me <laughs> and you were one of them Mark I know, Hadley I know. and you actually made sense of the movie for me <laughs> to the point where I still haven't been back to watch it but it's the most professionally possibly personally disappointing movie moment in my life because I had to fully admit to myself and now to the world that I was wrong. <laughs> I was wrong. Like, I, 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 I really need to go back to the film and, and work it out. But the disappointment was that I actually... <laughs> I actually became what I was accusing the movie of. I became pretentious and, <laughs> and overblown and I didn't know what I was talking about. And I just carried on about the tree of life in such a way that now I reflect on it and just think... Like, it, it, it drove, thinking about this list drove me back to Romans chapter 12. There's a great line at the start of that. It says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Yeah. I accused the tree of life of doing that. Instead, it was me that was doing that. <laughs> so number five, number one, sorry, on my top five most disappointing movie moments of all time is me reviewing the tree of life. The man's taught us there are two ways through life. The way of nature in the way of grace. You have to choose which one you'll follow. Grace doesn't try to please itself. Accepts being slighted, forgotten, disliked. Accepts insults and injuries. Nature only wants to please itself. Listen, Lord. 
Get others to please it too. Loving and faithful service. Likes to lord it over them. Bless these boys. To have its own way. It finds reasons to be unhappy when all the world is shining around it. And what do we learn from that? Invite me around if you're going to watch The Tree of Life. I'll sit on your couch and happily explain it to you. I hope so. Even after listening to that clip, I still don't get it. All right, we're coming up on the big picture next week because we are out of time, sadly. No uh, more that is, Kong. That's disappointing. That was the it biggest disappointment. disappointment. I know, that's yeah. right. Well, next week we're talking about love and mm. how movies and TV share it with us. That's right. I'll be checking out Loving, about a mixed-race couple and the unloving that they experience. And we'll also have The Space Between Us, a sort of sci-fi love story, and Disney's remake of its beloved animated fairy tale, and I use the term lightly, <laughs> Beauty and the Beast. Fairy tale. Don't be disappointed. I'll be Ben McKechnie next week. I'll still be Mark. Hadley. See ya. The Big Picture is a Bible Society Australia production, sharing the light of God's Word into every corner of your world. 